Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. Today we'll be following the Doctor and Stephen as they head into their latest adventure in the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions, the villains, and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on the story itself, so to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, on to the story recap. Episode 1, War of God. The TARDIS lands in an unused lot beside an alleyway. The Doctor observes their surroundings and declares that they have arrived in the late medieval to late 17th century era of France. Stephen pulls the Doctor into an alcove as a well-dressed man appears in the alleyway and makes his way to a nearby house for what appears to be a secret meeting. After he goes in, the Doctor says due to the style of the man's clothes that they are in the late 16th century and that he hopes that he can meet a famous apothecary named Preslin that lived during this time. They hear the people coming out of the house and go back into hiding. The well-dressed man, whose name is Gaston de Laurent, and his colleague Nicholas Mus are discussing the tensions between Catholics and Protestants in Paris and that they need to keep the peace between the two groups. After they leave, the Doctor and Stephen return to the TARDIS to change into more appropriate clothes and for the Doctor to review some old documents he has had on board. In a nearby tavern, Gaston and his fellow Huguenots are toasting to the health of Henry of Navarre, a Protestant prince who was recently married into the Catholic royal family. Another patron, Simon de Val, offers an additional toast to Henry's bride Marguerite, which leads to a thinly veiled insult from Gaston and the Huguenots. Nicholas tries to play peacemaker between the two noblemen, but it is to no avail as Gaston mockingly toasts Marguerite. Simon leaves, but before he goes, he enlists the tavern's landlord, a devout Catholic, to keep an eye on Gaston and the others and report back to him on their movements. Simon takes a parting shot at Gaston, which causes him to draw his sword, but he is stopped by Nicholas before he does anything rash. The Doctor and Stephen enter as Simon leaves, with the Doctor calling for some drinks while telling Stephen to ignore the commotion. As they relax, Stephen says he doesn't want to stay in the TARDIS whilst the Doctor visits Preslin. The Doctor says that he will only be bored by their scientific discussions, but he is reluctant to let Stephen wander through Paris by himself, as he could bring undue attention. Stephen promises to be careful, and the Doctor relents, giving Stephen some money and instructing him to return to the tavern that evening so that he can return to the TARDIS together. As he leaves, the Doctor accidentally bumps into an entering patron, but doesn't notice the look of recognition on the man's face, nor the fact that he follows after him. Stephen notices the events at the door and makes the follow after the man and the doctor, but the landlord says that he needs to pay for the drinks first. A disagreement ensues between Stephen and the landlord due to the fact that Stephen does not know the correct coins to pay for the drinks. Nicholas overhears the argument and pays on Stephen's behalf. Stephen thanks him and asks for directions to President's apothecary shop, but Nicholas says that he doesn't recognise the name, but he does promise to lead Stephen to the district he is located in after they first have a drink. Stephen is eager to go after the doctor as he is worried about the man following him and tensions within the city itself. However, Nicholas insists that he join him and his friends for a drink but promises they will go afterwards. Gaston is wary of Stephen due to the fact that he is a recent arrival in France and is in the same tavern as him and Nicholas. It turns out that Gaston is tasked with keeping Prince Henry safe whilst Nicholas has a similar responsibility to Admiral de Coligny. Stephen again expresses an eagerness to go to find the doctor and Nicholas escorts him to outside to give directions. The doctor arrives at President's shop, but instead of finding the man himself, he finds a frightened man who says that President has left the city. The doctor expresses his disappointment and talks about the amazing work President was doing in the field of germ research, causing the old man to slip up and reveal himself to be President. He says that he has to be careful in these current times, but the doctor agrees with the statement, only to open further discussions about President's work. During their conversation, President says that the reason he for his deception is due to the arrival of the Abbot of Amboise, 
a puritanical member of the church who views science as heresy and has been known to imprison scientists. The doctor thinks on this. Back outside the tavern, a young girl is fleeing a group of soldiers. She knocks into Stephen after he leaves the tavern and then rushes inside. The soldiers go in after her and are greeted by Gaston, who acknowledges them as being members of the Cardinal's Guard. They ask where the girl went, saying that she has been selected to be a servant for the Abbot of Amboise. Gaston says that she doesn't appear to be too keen on the idea, and a standoff ensues between the soldiers and Gaston and his friends. Outnumbered, the soldiers depart, with their captain saying he will report back to the Abbot. Stephen re-enters to check on the girl, and Gaston calls him back to the table, and fobs off Stephen's concerns for the girl due to her Catholic heritage. Gaston summons the girl and questions her, threatening to call back the guards if she doesn't talk to them. She reveals that her name is Anne and that she's been fleeing because she overheard the captain and another speaking about an impending reoccurrence of the events that happened at Wasay. She breaks down in tears as Gaston and Nicholas are shaken with fear. When Stephen asks what had happened at Wasay, they tell him that ten years before in the village, a hundred Huguenots were slaughtered by Catholics. Nicholas sends her to the house of his master, Admiral de Coligny, for protection, whilst Gaston goes to check on Prince Henry. Nicholas explains to Stephen that the recent marriage between Henry and Princess Marguerite was orchestrated by the Queen Mother to try and heal the religious divide in France, and what Anne overheard indicates a potential threat to Henry's life by Catholics. Nicholas leaves and Stephen decides to stay in the tavern to wait for the doctor. Elsewhere, the captain is in a meeting with Simon Duval and the man that was trailing the doctor, and they are discussing the runaway girl and what she potentially overheard. Simon says to search for any relatives the girl may have in Paris. He then goes to the tavern and gathers the information from what transpired from the landlord. He then goes over to Stephen and strikes up a conversation with him. He advises Stephen to be mindful of the city curfew and that he will need to find some place to stay. Stephen thanks him for his concern and says once his friends arrive, they will be departing Paris. Simon goes to leave, but before he can, Nicholas re-enters, forcing him into hiding. Nicholas says that Stephen can stay with him at the colony's house and tells the landlord to leave a message for the doctor. After he leaves, Simon once again bribes the landlord to tell him of everything that occurs. Back at the meeting room, the man who followed the doctor is giving his report about the runaway girl to the abbot, who grows increasingly irate as he talks. Simon enters and reveals what he has found out, and the abbot orders him to retrieve the girl. The abbot is an exact double of the doctor. Episode 2 The Sea Beggar Gaston has arrived at Nicholas's accommodation, giving out about the fact that Henry seems to be ignoring the potential threat to his life. Nicholas informs him Admiral de Coligny is also reluctant to believe the word of the servant girl. The two men express their frustrations at having to wait until more evidence presents itself. Nicholas voices his opinion that maybe Anne misheard things and in her terror assumed that they were talking about Wasay and the mysterious upcoming event were connected but when they could actually be two separate things. Meanwhile, Stephen has returned from the tavern and informs him that the doctor did not return there. Nicholas offers to help him, but Gaston, who has been looking out of the window, announces that another visitor has arrived, the abbot of Amboise secretary, Roger Corbet. Gaston says that he is more than likely come for the girl. Corbet enters and Stephen recognises him as the man who followed the doctor, but says nothing for the time being. Corbet echoes Nicholas's earlier statement about Anne misinterpreted what she heard and that he has come to return her to the abbot's service. Anne then enters with drinks, but Gaston dismisses her immediately and tells Corbet that her name is Genevieve, a long-time servant of the colony's household. Corbet leaves and Stephen informs them of his recognition of the man. Before they can discuss it any further, Gaston calls their attention to the window and shows them that the abbot himself has arrived. Stephen is confused and states that it's the doctor, which immediately arouses Gaston and Nicholas's suspicions in him of being a spy for the abbot. Stephen says that the abbot looks exactly like the doctor and that he isn't a spy. He asks Nicholas to accompany him to President's shop so that he can prove it, but Gaston fears it could be a trap. 
Nicholas says that he will risk it and tells Stephen that he had better be telling the truth. In another part of Paris, Simon is giving his report to the Marshal Tanavet about Anne and the Abbot's attempts to reclaim her. Tavernet gets irate at this foolishness and instructs Simon to keep an eye on him. Simon also informs about Stephen's association with Nicholas and the Marshal suspects that due to Stephen's heritage, the Admiral of the Colony is conspiring with the English monarchy. Tavernier instructs Simon to add Stephen to the list of, sp- of his spying duties and also instructs him to inform the abbot that they will discuss something called the Sea Beggar later. As he says the name, the colony enters and assumes that they are discussing the Dutch and their conflict with the Spanish. They discuss the political state of affairs in Europe and opposing opinions on how to handle their difference due to their religions. Tavernier inquires about Stephen's presence but the colony says that he was just a simple traveller and says that he is too suspicious. Tavernier then reparts for an audience with the Queen Mother. After hours of searching and with Nicholas's suspicion increasing, Stephen finds President's shop. However, there is no answer to their knocks and a passing woman relates the story of President's disappearance a few years beforehand, echoing President's own cover story to the Doctor. Nicholas grows angrier with each passing minute and accuses the Doctor of being an alias for the Abbot and that Stephen is working for him. Stephen denies this and instead suggests that maybe the Doctor is impersonating the Abbot for some reason and offers to prove this to Nicholas. However, Nicholas has had enough and says he will take Stephen back to the others to answer their questions, but Stephen escapes. At the abbot's quarters, Simon and Corbet are waiting for him to return. Corbet says that he is most likely out with the assassin that has been sent to aid him, but Simon reprimands him to use the code name given for him, lest the target get wind of his presence in Paris. Simon then instructs Corbet to find out what he can about Stephen and his purpose there. At the Admiral's quarters, Nicholas returns and informs Gaston of Stephen's escape and that he is most likely an agent of the Abbot. Anne overhears this and stands up for Stephen, citing his kind nature and the fact that he is a stranger to Paris to support his innocence, but Gaston dismisses her. Nicholas tells Gaston that Stephen has most likely returned to the Abbot's quarters. Stephen has in fact gone to the Abbot's, sneaking past the guards and climbing up towards an open window. He overhears Tavanya reprimanding Simon and Corbet for not locating the Abbot. He then tells them to resume their search in order to tell the abbot that he has been given the order for the sea beggar to be killed tomorrow. After he leaves, Simon informs Corbet that it is actually the Queen Mother who has given the order. Stephen leaves and returns to Nicholas's chambers. He is told to wait by a servant, but decides to find a pen and paper to leave a note. As he is searching the desk for writing implements, Gaston arrives and, see, and seeing Stephen rifling through his friend's documents, orders him to get out, refusing to listen to Stephen's news. He then draws his sword on him, forcing Stephen to draw his own to defend himself. Gaston disarms him and again orders him to leave, throwing his weapon back at him. Nicholas arrives in after he leaves and gives out to Gaston when he relates what happened, saying Stephen would only risk coming back if he had important information for them. He tells Gaston to get out, which he dejectedly does so. Stephen is making his way through the streets of Paris, being followed at a distance by Anne. Stephen ducks into hiding as he feels he is being followed and jumps out again once Anne passes him. She apologises, but says that she was following to look after him, but to also enlist his help as she can risk staying at the colony's house anymore. Stephen suggests that they go to President's shop, as no one would think to look for them there. Back in Nicholas's room, the colony enters as he returns from a meeting with the king, where he successfully convinced the king to assist the Dutch in their war against the Spanish. He also reveals his new nickname, given to him by the king, that reflects his advocacy for the Dutch and their own cultural origins. He says that he is proud to be known as the Sea Beggar. Episode 3. Priest of Debt In President's shop, Anne accidentally wakes up Stephen and informs him that it is morning. Stephen decides that he will need to go back to the abbot's house in the hopes of finding the doctor there and stop the impending assassination of the colony. Anne tries to dissuade him from the course of action, saying that he will certainly be recognised and captured. 
Stephen says that he will need to change clothes to avoid detection and that he and Anne scour the shop for, to find what he needs. Stephen tries to convince Anne to join him, but she is too afraid to go back to the Abbot's house. He promises to look after her, and if they are recognised, then they can split up and return to President's shop. In the Royal Council Chamber, the colony is arguing with Tanave about the King's decision to go to war alongside the Dutch. They bicker back and forth until the King calls a halt to it, saying that he supports the colony. Tavanya tries a new tactic by saying the Treasury doesn't have enough money to support the war, and that they have to open the Royal Hunting Grounds so they can collect payment from hunters. This seems to give the King pause, and the conversation is quickly changed to other matters, which upsets the colony. Talk then turns to the religious unrest between the Catholics and the Protestants, with the colony saying that despite the Queen Mother's brokering of a peace between the two factions, actions speak louder than words. He also alludes to her being the real power in France, a statement that infuriates Tanave. The Queen Mother refuses to rise to the debate, and she has Tavanier escort her from the room. The King then disbands the council until after the feast of St. Bartholomew, which is tomorrow. At the abbot's quarters, Stephen and Anne are shown to a waiting room by a priest and told that the abbot will see them after his morning prayers. Stephen insists on seeing him now as he has urgent news for him. The abbot appears and Stephen greets him as the doctor, but the abbot orders him to be silent. Stephen, realising that he is not the doctor, informs him that he has brought Anne back to him in an effort to buy himself some time. The abbot thanks him and dismisses the priest, who leaves just as Tavania enters. The abbot reveals through the conversation with Tavanier that the sea beggar is the colony and once they leave, Stephen says that he and Anne need to warn Nicholas about the threat to his master's life. Tavanier is filling in the abbot about the events in the meeting when Corbet arrives and informs him that he has seen Stephen and Anne leaving the building and alerts him to his friendship with Nicholas. Tavanier reprimands the abbot for his lack of prudence when he didn't ask Stephen to identify himself and warns the abbot that for his sake, Stephen had better not ruin their plans. Stephen returns to Nicholas's office and informs him that the Admiral is the target and Nicholas rushes to the street where the assassination is to take place. He arrives too late as the colony is shot but he is only wounded in the arm. Nicholas escorts him back to the house as the colony's men go to search the house that the shot came from. Back at the Abbot's house, Tavania refuses to let him leave until they get news about the assassination, saying that his connection to the Cardinal will not be enough to save him if they fail. Corbet enters and informs him that the colony still lives. Tavania summons the guards to kill the abbot as a spy. In the royal chambers, the king and the queen mother are informed of the attempt on the colony's life, and the queen mother slips away unnoticed as the king rages and demands that the assassin and the conspirators be found. Once they are safe back at his house, the colony falls unconscious as they wait for a doctor and Nicholas asks Stephen to tell him everything he knows about the plot. Stephen mentions the conversation he heard between Tavania and the abbot, but identifies Corbet as one of the plotters. He also remains insistent that the abbot is actually the doctor, who is acting the part for some unknown reason. As they are arguing, council member Thaligny arrives and informs them of the unrest in the city due to the assassination attempt. He tells them that the abbot has been murdered and that his death is being blamed on the Huguenots. Stephen rushes off in a state of horror at the perceived death of his friend. Back at the council chambers, the king orders Tavania to set up a protective cordon around the colony's house and that they are to remove all Catholics from the area as well. Thaligny advises against this as it could make anti-Protestant feelings grow in the city. The king, however, is too enraged at the attempt on his friend's life and demands that his orders be carried out. He disbands the council so that he can be alone, but the queen mother arrives, ignoring his orders. He threatens to have her arrested as an accomplice along with Tavania in the assassination attempt and have them both executed. The queen mother, however, tells him that Tavania was only seeking to protect them and then produces death threats that were sent to her. She says that despite his benevolent rule over them, the Huguenots are plotting to overthrow him and replace him with Henry of Navarre. 
Outside the Abbot's house, an angry mob is formed and demand vengeance against the Huguenots for his murder. Stephen arrives and investigates the body. As he is doing this, Corbet arrives and seeing an opportunity to get rid of him, tells an angry crowd that it was Stephen who murdered the abbot, causing them to chase him through the streets. Episode 4. Bell of Doom Back in President's shop, Anne is waiting for Stephen to return. She suddenly hears a knock on the door and Stephen begs her to let him in. He tells her about what he saw outside the abbot's house and acts despondent at the concept of the doctor being dead. Anne asks him to what he was going to do and he says he needs to try and find the key to the TARDIS. He says that they need to search the shop as it is the only place that he knows that the doctor visited. They search through various drawers and chests and they locate the doctor's walking stick. Anne suggests that maybe he went away with Preslin, but Stephen relates the fate of the apothecary that he was told earlier. Suddenly a voice calls out that the story is false and Stephen looks up to see the doctor. At Tavania's quarters, Simon and Tavania are discussing the recent events and say that they need to find Stephen as soon as possible to be a scapegoat for the abbot's murder. A messenger arrives and gives Tavania a summons from the Queen Mother. He leaves and Simon reads the note that he left behind. At the colony's house, Gaston is arguing with the Admiral that he is still in danger and that they should not trust any Catholic aid. He suggests getting the Admiral out of Paris, but Nicholas says that he is too weak to be moved. Gaston leaves angrily, telling them to take care of themselves. After he leaves, Nicholas, the Thelony and the Colony ponder Gaston's words and wonder if they put themselves in further danger. At President's shop, the Doctor and Stephen bick over whose fault it was that they got separated, but the Doctor puts a stop to it by saying that they should go back to the TARDIS. Anne informs them that they can't go now due to the curfew, but they can go tomorrow as the city will be easier to navigate due to the St. Bartholomew's Day festival. Stephen chimes in about the fact that the festival is still going ahead with everything that occurred. Suddenly, the Doctor demands that Anne tell him the year, and she says that it is 1572. The Doctor orders her to leave at once and find somewhere to stay, but she says that she has nowhere to go. The doctor tells her that if she leaves now and goes to her aunt's house, then she will be safe, and if she stays inside tomorrow. Stephen is incredulous as Anne bids them goodbye and demands to know what is going on, but the doctor refuses to tell him and insists that they need to get back to the TARDIS. At the Queen Mother's chambers, Tavania is reviewing the list of names when the Queen Mother arrives bearing a letter from the King, saying that their plan has been sanctioned. However, Tavania is taken aback when the Queen Mother decrees that the people of Paris will do their job for them and eliminate not just the names on the list, but any Huguenot that they can come across. He convinces her to ensure Prince Henry's safety as his death would incite a holy war across Europe. She relents and instructs him to get Henry out of the city and once it is done, to close the city gates so that no Huguenot can escape. Simon enters after she leaves and relishes the new orders that have been given to them but is irate when Tavania tasks him with getting Henry out of the city. The Doctor and Stephen arrive at the TARDIS which is actually close to the colony's house and therefore near the guard stationed outside. As they are discussing how to gain access to it, the guards are relieved of duty, much to their confusion, by our larger squad. The Doctor and Stephen use this opportunity and dash into the TARDIS. The ship takes off as the soldiers force their way into the house. We are then shown a montage of the massacre taking place in the city, that claims the lives of thousands of Huguenots, including the Coligny, Nicholas, Gaston and the Thelonier. The Doctor relays all this information to a horrified Stephen, who laments the fact that there was nothing that could have been done. He gives out to the Doctor for not taking Anne with them, and that he essentially sentenced her to death. He demands to be let off the next time the TARDIS lands, saying that he no longer wants to travel with the Doctor if he is so ambivalent to the loss of lives that could have been saved. The ship lands and the Doctor gives Stephen a parting message about how time can be a cruel thing to travel in, but in the end he stands by his decision as it was the right thing to do. With that, Stephen leaves. The Doctor sits down in the TARDIS, sad that he is now alone, and bemoans the fact that all the others have left him as well. 
He contemplates returning to his home planet, but realises that that is an impossibility. As he makes preparations to take off, a young girl rushes in and asks where the telephone is. The doctor is taken aback by her lack of recognition of her surroundings and tells her that she should try to find the police outside somewhere else. The girl asks him who he is and he tries to tell her who he is and what the ship does, but she is too confused by what he is saying. As he tries to get her to leave again, Stephen re-enters the TARDIS and tells the doctor to take off. Stephen tells him that there are two policemen on the way to use the police box and so the doctor does indeed take off. Stephen then notices that the girl is still on board and is amazed at how blasé she seems to be about everything. She says that she has no close family and doesn't really mind what's happening. The doctor comments on her similarity to Susan and asks her name. She introduces herself as Dodo, her preferred title to her full name of Dorothea Chaplet. Stephen perks up on the name and when Dodo mentions that she has French ancestors, the doctor tells him that there is a possibility of a relationship between her and Anne. With introductions made all around and Dodo insisting on being addressed as such, the TARDIS takes its crew off to its next adventure. End of the story. So now that's the summary out of the way, we're going to go over to the trivia section uh, with Trish for some notes. So Trish, over to you. Thank you very much. So the air date for the story was the 5th of February 1966 to the 26th of February 1966. The writers credited with this story are John Lucarotti and Donald Tosh. John Lucarotti we have discussed before. We've seen his work in the Aztecs and Marco Polo. Though obviously we don't get to enjoy Marco Polo in its original form anymore. John also wrote the novelization for all three of these stories. So that's the Aztecs, Marco Polo and the massacre donald tosh was actually the script editor of doctor who from the time meddler up to the third episode of the massacre tosh wrote the final drafts of all four episodes amending john's originals extensively he was only credited on bell of doom though because during the production of the first three episodes he was still on the bbc staff as doctor who's story editor and you can't be credited as the writer while you're mm. the sitting story editor. Gotcha. Apparently. So this is actually where things get interesting though, because since this is a lost story, and thank you to Loose Cannon, by the way, mm-hmm. because no footage of the title sequence actually exists, no one can say with any certainty whether John's name was actually on the first three episodes. Yeah, because when Loose Cannon did this, um like so normally the, the way that the episode title would appear is the episode title would appear over the start of an actual scene. Mm. So for this one instead, there's a kind of a painted backdrop with the episode title appearing on it. Yeah, so they, they created that themselves. And actually in an interview that Luce Cannon had with Donald Tosh, he said that John Lucarotti may not have received any on-screen credit and that the first three episodes may have actually gone to broadcast with no writer name on them. A different view, though, is available, which seems to be, which seems to have the most support from BBC sources, which is that Lucarotti massively disagreed with Tosh's script changes and requested that his name be withdrawn from the credits. The BBC declined this request, and so the story went out with Lucarotti's name on each episode, and with both he and Tosh being credited in the Bell of Doom, which is essentially what Luce Cannon did. This also ties up with the Radio Times listings. So, I mean, if it was listed that way in Radio Times, 
it stands to reason it would have been listed that way on the episode itself. Hmm. The director for the story was Paddy Russell. This is the first of four Doctor Who directing credits for Paddy Russell, and she was the first female director of Doctor Who. Her other three Doctor Who stories are Invasion of the Dinosaurs, Pyramids of Mars, and Horror of Fang Rock. Though, if you remember our discussion for The Edge of Destruction, you will know that she was originally asked to direct that story, but time commitments just didn't allow it. Those stories that she has done are so like I think they're some of the best Doctor Who stories from the eras that of those particular doctors. So like Invasion is John Pertwee, uh, Pyramids, which is one that I tell everyone to watch, um, and Fang or Tom. So it's nice to actually kind of see directors go across generations with the various doctors. Yeah, definitely. In relation to this doctor and this story, um, she noted in a DVD documentary that this was the first time William Hartnell had worked with a female director and that he found the the whole experience to be a little bit bizarre. But that she was actually surprised that they got along really, really well. However, he, she did also comment that he was having a lovely time arguing with John Wiles. So maybe he was distracted <laughs> by John Wiles and didn't really care about him so much. It was Paddy Russell, though, who really coached the Doctor when he was playing the Abbot. That the Abbot should be portrayed as a separate character and there should be no trace of the doctor and so that was her sort of coaching him through that performance yeah because like the only other time we've ever seen William Hartnell play other people so far is he played the duplicate doctor or the robot doctor from the chase and then he had like that quick cameo at the episode 7 of the master plan where he plays like the Arabian uh, expert oh yeah yeah, yeah no. let's not talk about episode, episode 7. Let's move on from episode that's 7. Yeah. Um, sadly, Paddy Russell passed away in 2017. Similar to Marco Polo and Mission to the Unknown, not only is the massacre a missing story, but all of its episodes are missing. Also, there were no telesnaps taken either, unlike in Marco Polo. Like, Marco Polo for a missing story is fairly well documented because Waris Hussein loved the idea of having tally snaps and he kept his own personal collection and all this kind of stuff john wiles was not that type of person he didn't pay for tally snaps to be taken so the yeah. only visual reference that exists is actually promotional shots for the show often which don't provide any real context so again if you've actually watched the loose cannon recreation they did an amazing job with no baseline yeah and like there's so much like the the montage I mentioned in the summary uh, so that's the the background for the montage is the is the massacre painting by a guy called Francois Dubois um, and it's it's one of those horrible old style kind of paintings that depict violence in a, that really kind of graphic unsettling way and what they did was they just superimposed the f- pictures of the various characters that died over it and it's done to the to, to the backdrop of like screams and anarchy and blood and you know, that kind of stuff it was very unsettling and it was very well done yeah i'll probably speak to that in my overall later on yeah so again for no baseline that's a really really unsettling ending yeah definitely the full title of this story the massacre of saint bartholomew's eve is technically a bit of a misnomer because said massacre actually took place on St. Bartholomew's Day not on the evening before it but that was just a stylistic writing choice Mm. 
According to the book Doctor Who Companions, at the end of this story, there was meant to be an amazing cameo that would have made me entirely happy, which is that William Russell and Jacqueline Hill were meant to come back as Ian and Barbara at the end of this story. The scene, which was scheduled to be filmed, but was cancelled and never actually got filmed, had Ian and Barbara witnessing the dematerialization of the TARDIS when Dodo enters. They didn't film it, and it really pisses <sighs> me off. Just the two of them going, nope, nope, not again, not again. We love you, but not again. I think it'd be nice, though. It really bothers me that we didn't get to see that. It would have been cool. Yeah. I'm going to blame John Wilds for that one again. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> so, on to our cast. So, as the abbot, we have William Hartnell. <laughs> Shock horror. Yeah. So, unlike in The Chase, where... Hartnell only played the robot doctor for some of the shots and made a second actor playing him for the rest. William Hartnell is the only actor playing the Abbot. No one else plays that part. He is credited as Doctor Who for War of God and Bell of Doom and as Abbot of Ambois for The Sea Beggar and Priest of Death. So when you think of it that way, there's two episodes, or the only two episodes of the series, in which no actor is credited as the Doctor. Mm. Because even Mission to the Unknown, which he wasn't in... He's credited. He's credited as Doctor Who William Hartnell. But they didn't include him twice in the credits, because reasons, I suppose. Um, so yeah, so this is the only story where there's no credited Doctor listed. So, you know the way, like, uh, this is kind of re- going to sound like a really weird tangent, but you know the way, like, for games like um, like Skyrim and all that kind of stuff, people have done, like, mods of, like, Thomas the Tank Engine as a dragon or this type of thing. <laughs> yeah. Every time you say War of God, or I've said War of God, I've thought of God of War. So can someone that's good at modding please redo all the God of War franchise with William Hartnell's Doctor as Kratos? <laughs> <laughs> Or just fan art works as well. Absolutely. I just have him say boy constantly. (laughs) (laughs) So Anne is played by Annette Robertson. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Annette. She was actually considered to become a main companion. But it was deemed that she'd have the same issues that Katarina had. Where her origin and history wouldn't help the viewers identify with her. And too much would have to be explained. Which I still think is stupid. Anyway. (laughs) Annette's other acting credits include Shroud for a Nightingale, Couples, and Coronation Street. Interestingly, Annette was married to John Hurt from 1962 to 1964. So this is another Doctor Who couple pre-show, because we previously yeah. said that Jean uh, Marsh was married to John Pertwee. <laughs> so, keep it all in the family. Nicholas is played by David Weston. This is the first of two appearances for David. We will see him again in Warrior's Gate. His other acting credits include The Spread of the Eagle, Heiress of Garth, The Magical World of Disney, and our bingo ticket for the day, Zed Cars. Very good. Gaston is played by Eric Thompson, who some may know as the husband of Philida Law and the father of Emma Thompson, the actress. This is his only Doctor Who appearance. Which is sad, I thought he was really cool. Yeah. His other acting credits include The Magic Ball, Coronation Street, and again, Zach Cars. He's best known, though, for rewriting and narrating The Magic Roundabout for its English release. Which, 
is such a messed up program when you look back on it <laughs> as an adult. <laughs> it's a brilliant, lo- but like a lot of shows up. are messed up when you look back at them as an adult. Also, throughout the entire summary, all I could think of was no one fights like Gaston. <laughs> no one hates those goddamn Catholics quite like Gaston. <laughs> oh, <Jesus. laughs> yeah. I was like, sorry, the character, like he's really, really anti-Catholic. He really is, and we'll get yeah. to that in a bit. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking on the Magic Roundabout, actually. And the, the, the two programs that always come to mind together for me are the Magic Roundabout and the Clangers. Oh, God. Both programs that are just like so mental and off the wall. Anyway, back to Eric Thompson. Yeah. Eric sadly passed away in 1982. Simon is played by John Tillinger. Again, this is the only Doctor Who acting credit for John. His other acting credits include Another World, The Addams Chronicles, and Hit and Run. Roger is played by Christopher Tranchell. This is the first of three appearances for Christopher. We'll see him again in The Faceless Ones and The Invasion of Time. His other acting credits include Out of the Unknown, The Bill, Zedkaris, The New Avengers, and Churchill's People. So not quite the other bingo ticket, which is The Avengers, but this is The New Avengers. This is The New Avengers, yeah. <laughs> Marshall Tavanis, is that how we're pronouncing his name? I th- I think it's Tavanie. I think that's how it's pronounced. Oh, Tavanie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Marshall Marshall Tavanie is played by Andre Morel. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. He's probably best known in television for his role as Professor Bernard Quartermass in the 1958 BBC television series Quartermass in the Pit. And the cinema, he's known for playing Doctor Watson alongside Peter Cushing's Sherlock Holmes in the Hammerhorror 1958 adaptation of The Hound of the Basketballs. His other acting credits include a very long list. So, The Bridge on the River Kwai, Ben-Hur, The Slipper and the Rose, The Plague of the Zombies, The Mummy Shroud, The Vengeance of She, and the 1978 animated version of The Lord of the Rings, where he played Elrond. I've seen bits of that, and it's weird, because like they've rotoscoped like, all the orcs and things like that, so it's, the animation style is very strange. Also, it's very... It's not- it's very John strange. Hurt. John Hurt was in it as well. John Hurt was in it. Yes, yes he yeah. was. Um, yeah, no, the 1978 animated version of Lord of the Rings is very strange. Good, but strange. Strange. Andre passed away in 1978. The Queen Mother is played by Catherine de' Medici. No, the no, Queen no, Mother no, is no. Catherine de' Medici. <laughs> Catherine That's not again. Yeah. Wow. Mother, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> The Queen Mother, Catherine de' Medici, is played by Joan Young. This is Joan's only appearance in Doctor Who once again. Her other acting credits include Anne of Green Gables, Johnny You're Wanted, The Grove Family, Dixit of Doc Green, Zed Cars again, and All Creatures Great and Small. Joan passed away in 1984. Three characters to go. Cool. <laughs> Admiral de Colony is played by Leonard Sachs. This is the first of two Doctor Who appearances for Leonard. We'll see him again in Ark of Infinity. He was also considered for the role of Marcus Scarman in Pyramids of Mars. I'm oh. guessing because Paddy remembered him from this one. She considered him for that one as well. And I thought he was really good in this story. Mm, he was. His other acting credits include Out of the Past, Coronation Street, Quick Before They Catch Us, The Adventures of Sir Lancelot, and The Adventures Yay. of Robin Hood. <laughs> Leonard passed away back in 1990. The King is played by Barry Justice. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit for Barry. His other credits include Emergency Ward 10, David Copperfield, The Doctors and The Palisers. 
Barry passed away in 1980. Lastly, we have Jackie Lane as Dodo. As we've done with other companions coming onto the TARDIS, we'll discuss Jackie in more detail next week when we see her actually have a starting episode of the show. And just, I, I said this to Trish during the week, I came across one of the most unusual bits of trivia uh, in relation to character or actors uh, in Doctor Who. And for some reason, it just makes me smile an awful lot. So I didn't peg it until I watched a later story. But there's an actor in this in this and in the Daleks Master Plan called Hugh Cecily. Now, I know Hugh from Dad's Army. He was a background platoon member. But, in, weirdly enough, he's also one of the party goers in, Rocky Hor- in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I, for some reason, that piece of trivia just constantly sticks in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Doctor Who, yeah. Time Warp. You know. Yeah, ex- exactly. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> It's just a jump to the left. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this is the last piece of random nonsense. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's um, two sisters on YouTube who've been making videos for donkey's years um, called Hollywood Productions. So Hollywood, but with an I instead of an O. Mm-hmm. And they do parodies of songs with, you know, pop culture things in them. So they did like Shake It Off by Taylor Swift but it's the characters from Supernatural. They also did the Ghostbusters song as the characters from Supernatural. They did one of Sherlock. They did uh, one for Deathly Hallows Part 2. But they did a version of Time Warp as the cast of Doctor Who. I need to watch that. Around the time of Runaway Bride, I want to say. So it was around like the third or fourth season. It's really, really funny. Just on a complete tangent. Yeah, that's... It's third season because uh, it's David Tennant's second season, but that's third season. Well, yeah, but I mean, when yeah. they filmed, it was oh, around right. the third yeah. or fourth oh, season. Yeah. I don't know exactly. Okay, gotcha. Now, uh, yes, we're going to look that up after we finish this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we've gone through the story summary. We've gone through the trivia. So now it's time for the discussion. Now, as this is a historical story, and it contains some people from history who actually existed, we're going to break this out again. So we're going to have the Doctor, the Companions, the Villains, and then a little bit on the historical figures who mm-hmm. appear in the story. Yeah. So, Paddy, I'll start you off. What did you think of the Doctor? I've been waiting, to, ever since I've watched this, I've been waiting to say this. Doctor Who? More like Doctor Where. Am I right? Ah! <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm doing finger guns and everything. So, fuck all y'all. Uh, um, so, honestly, there's not a whole lot to say about the Doctor in the story. There's not. Mm-hmm. Except for that amazing monologue at the end. It's so heartbreaking. He goes on about, like, the sense of like loss and kind of almost you get a sense of abandonment because he talks about like Stephen not comprehending and then he leaves and then he goes about it and Vicky and Ian and Barbara and then Susan and it's like I honestly I think that this is a kind of a I would like to believe that this scene was very cathartic for William Hartnell because as we documented before like William Hartnell was very upset and annoyed that uh, William Russell and uh Jacqueline, Jacqueline Hill. Hill yeah sorry Jack, I couldn't remember her last name for a second I was like Jacqueline Wright no <laughs> Barbara Hill <laughs> uh, that, they, that they left the show and 
obviously he was very fond of suit of uh, caroline ford which is another well-documented thing and his relationship with maureen o'brien as well from what i understand was pretty good yeah they had a really good working relationship maureen has said that like before because they used to film at like 7 p.m mm. it was sort of like this very sort of stage production-esque that's, that's the way it was done back in the even like up into the 70s they were still doing it that way yeah um and so she she didn't mention if William Russell did it. I imagine he did. But she did mention that herself and Jacqueline Hill used to go into William Hartnell's dressing room and they'd all have a glass of wine or mm. a glass of something just before they started as a sort of coming together before the show started. Which I think is a lovely yeah. idea that them just like sitting down having a friendly drink and then going off and filming. And as well, like, um, as we kind of said on the podcast as well but like if anyone watches the 50th anniversary documentary which we will probably review at some stage well into the future um mm. he was also very close to a lot of the production staff so like verity and waris hussein and i think mervyn pinfield as well and like when you're the lead in a show and there's this unfortunate revolving door of people coming in and out of your life and you get attached to them it is upsetting so i'd, I'd like to believe that he channeled that into the scene and I think that's one of the good things about Hartnell is that the story could be absolute cack but he will carry it or yeah. he will only appear in a short amount of time but when he's there he nails it and yeah, this is definitely. one of, this is one of those times yeah so like again you know there's not a whole lot to say about the doctor which I thought but now that I look at my notes I have like eight different bullet points so maybe <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's more to say about him than I thought yeah. so I was going to go down through these line by line. So mm-hmm. first of all, right, we've mentioned this before, but I love it because it keeps coming up. The doctor and his need to dress for every occasion <laughs> is fabulous. None of the, like, Troughton cares a little bit, but like, particularly when you get to like Pertwee and beyond, none of them change their clothing. Do you know, like you've, if you think about, you know, modern who, and like Fires of Pompeii, brilliant episode. Yeah, David Tennant's wandering around in his suit. Hmm. You know, they don't try to blend in, but he just wants to blend in. I convinced that he just likes dressing up. He's like you know um, a medren, like a medieval hmm. reenactor person who just like is like I get to get out my cosplay. Sweet, I have a perfect costume for this. I'm back in a minute, and he just runs off. Interesting, <laughs> interesting that you pick Fires of Pompeii because I think this story is like the classic version of fires of pompeii or Pirate that, that could be why i yeah, thought yeah, of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um one of the things as well is that like <laughs> i have to laugh because it it comes true so well and we'll talk about it in a second we talk about Stephen, but i love his concern for Stephen outing himself as not being from that time period mm. as in <laughs> he's tempted to even skip visiting the man he wanted to see because he can't leave Stephen alone without locking him in the TARDIS for his own good. I'm just like, you see Stephen the same way I do. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, it's great to see his love of science and its history. That mm. scene with the... Um, Preslin. With Preslin, yeah. I love that because, again, you sort of see that this is why the Doctor travels. Mm. You know, in, in future, I know that we... We find out more about Gallifrey. We find out more about his past and stuff like that. But this really goes back to why the Doctor travels and why he gets so much fun about it. 
he's an observer of history and the idea that he gets to interact with someone from history and discuss notes with them or inspire them like that that's you know that's the sort of thing that this doctor lives for i think it's brilliant but it also has the downside which is that you need to preserve the course of history and this is where this story really does mirror the fires of pompeii Mm. because he makes the very tough choice of bundling Stephen back into the TARDIS, not even explaining, and just leaving. Yeah. And I think that says a lot of... It's not even just him preserving the course of history and not wanting to be witness to something like this. I think it says a lot about his understanding of Stephen. Hmm. Because while I've had my issues with Stephen as a character, we have said that Stephen can be incredibly protective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... He was clearly very protective of Anne. And I think had they not left when they did or had the doctor explained why they were leaving, I think the doctor had a very genuine concern that Stephen would have done something to get himself hurt or killed. And so the doctor was like, actually, I'm not even going to give him the option. Mm. We're going to leave. I'll explain to him later. No, absolutely. And like I'm not, we're not going to talk about too much about Fires of Pompeii because I don't want to give away too much of the story for like some of our listeners that are only introduced to Doctor Who through the podcast. Um, but I, I have a head kind of know that he, this experience resonates for the Doctor during the Fires of Pompeii. Yeah, uh, I know. I, I get completely what you're saying because, like, if it had been say we bring it back, if it would have been Barbara, or if it had been Ian, they would have they would know what the stakes were and they, w- yeah. they wouldn't have been happy but they would have gone into the TARDIS. Stephen... Yeah, see, Barbara, Barbara would have probably figured it out before now. Oh, well, yeah. When hearing mention of certain people's yeah. names and, and stuff like that. Given the fact that, like, it's... Like, for Stephen, this is something that happened not even just hundreds of years ago but hundreds upon hundreds of years ago. So he doesn't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the bit at the end... Well, yeah. the bit in the TARDIS when Stephen leaves, that was one of Hartnell's best, I think. Yeah. He's had a lot of really good monologues. Mm-hmm. You know, his one, I know he was talking to Susan, but it's essentially William yeah. doing a monologue. When Susan leaves, um, he's had a few other ones that have been absolutely amazing, but this one like you said it's it's so emotional and raw mm. like bawling doesn't even begin to describe it like because he's just he's just defeated that's all it is it's just an air of defeat yeah and like the way he describes everyone as like you know they don't understand what it's like but i think it's also the fact that like he knows they don't do it for the same reason he does yeah you know, he travels through time knowing that there will be times when he has to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think at this moment he's looking back and it's like, Susan, we don't know why Susan went with the doctor. I have a few, like, headcanons as to why they went, but we don't mm. know yeah. why they left. But, you know, she wanted to settle down. She didn't want to be jumping from place to place all the time, apparently. Ian and Barbara, while, you know, I have a funny feeling that Every time the Doctor goes into a historical piece, he's sort of like, oh, Barbara would have loved this. Yeah. (laughs) She would have loved this. But he also knows them well enough to know, yeah, she would have loved it, but 
they wanted to go down the pub and mm-hmm. have a drink and that was it and you know vicky again someone who he thought had mm. the same wanderlust that he did apparently didn't <laughs> um so yeah i think it's he's defeated and broken and i think you know if you again if you look at it from the modern lens of doctor who and not even modern but if you look at it from a more advanced like future doctors that's the the lonely god motif yeah. or you know think of pyramids of mars you know i walk in eternity yeah you know that that's where a lot like people sometimes say like oh like hartnell you couldn't write him off people are about like it all starts with him hmm. like going back i think has given me like because william hartnell was always within my top five doctors hmm. uh going back has given me and uh, rewatching it for a more critical analysis has given me like a such much more deeper appreciation of his car- version of the doctor yeah we were we were we were discussing this the other day yeah and i never really ranked william hartnell in my doctors like i've said before that i kind of watched his stories for ian and barbara more yeah. so than for him when i originally watched it but definitely now i mean He's my second, maybe third favorite, depending on my mood. Hmm. That's of, of the doctors I've watched. Because bear in mind, there's a few that I haven't seen. And so, and again, like before, we did this. Like you were very, when it came to certain doctors, you were very companion centric. So, for example, yeah. like your big kind of knowledge of John would be through Sarah Jane, the same way with hmm. with Tom. Uh, to a smaller extent, maybe Leela later on, but um, and then obviously for William Hartnell, it's Ian and Barbara. So I think this is probably one of my favorite aspects of doing the podcast is actually kind of getting you to see the new stuff and getting your reaction to it, mm. or like stuff that's new to you as opposed to the new stuff. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things, though, that again, you know, so we have this amazing emotional piece with the Doctor, which is brilliant, and I'm so gutted it didn't survive. So gutted. But <laughs> now we get to the end, right? A stop fucking kidnapping people. <laughs> well, like okay, no, it a... worked out well the first time, but yeah. it's not something you should be repeating. No, but see, this thing, this right, this is completely accidental. And like you're, you're told like Stephen comes rushing in, and it's like quick, quick, take off, take off. You know, like the cops are coming; they're going to use this thing. It's like, course, oh shit, go! And then it's like, ah, shite. Um. Is that really kidnapping? Yes. Yes, it is. But there's, there's no real intent behind this? Is it, like it doesn't a, matter. It doesn't matter. All right, fair enough. <laughs> Malicious intent isn't a necessity. Um, <laughs> but I have a concern at the end of this, though, which mm. is Dodo reminds him of Susan. Mm. And I wonder if that's going to be a challenging thing going forward given the fact that he has just essentially he was a broken man and then this young woman enters who has a similar hairstyle to susan mm-hmm. and who he even comments Stephen, doesn't she remind you of susan forgetting the fact that Stephen never met susan in the first place yeah and i'm like i i'm really interested to see how his dynamic with dodo works because 
given the emotional state he was in, I don't want him literally treating Dodo as if she's Susan. Yeah, because it gets very kind of weird then because like Stephen wakes up to see the doctor giving him a haircut to replicate Ian's hairstyle. There's like a, <laughs> there's a mop wearing, you know, one of Sus- or Barbara's cardigans. You know, it just gets very strange. <laughs> you know that cardigan wouldn't last very long anyway. No, so. it wouldn't. <laughs> Bite it. Bite the cardigan. Yeah, so actually, yeah, so for a story that the doctor isn't in very much, I noticed quite a lot about his character. Yeah. But and it all comes from like that last however long, like that last, well, with the exception of his like amazing fashion sense, it all comes from like those last 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, I think it's his scene with the, um, I keep forgetting his name. Preslin. Yeah, his scene with him and then the scenes at the end. Yeah. But I think you find out so much about the doctors in those few minutes. Mm. I won't say it doesn't matter that the doctor isn't in the rest of it, but it 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 still shows, like you said, it doesn't matter how much of it he's in. Hartnell delivers hundred and fifty percent. He's fucking brilliant. Oh yeah, love him. So moving on to our companions. Mm-hmm. So we have Stephen. Yes. So I'm gonna let you lead on uh, on to Stephen this one. <laughs> Yeah. He is complaining from the first fucking line. Like and then the fact that he's like, I can take care of myself, but he doesn't know he doesn't know that you have to pay or how to do so. Mm. And then he gets like all uppity because like, oh he won't take my money. It's like you know, from what I understand, it's like as if someone went into a pub, bought a pint, and tried to pay with a five hundred euro note. Pretty much. I was like, yeah. no one can break a 500 euro note. I used to work in a shop. Someone tried to pay with a 500 euro note. My manager told me, no, give them a credit note and they can come back and pay tomorrow. Yeah. Like, you can't take money of a certain size. So like the fact that he's like, I can take care of myself. Clearly can't. The thing though about this is that Stephen fumbles from scene to scene. And he is so clearly incapable of surviving by himself you know one of the things that we've discussed a lot um in previous episodes and this isn't just us going on about how much i love ian and barbara but um because it was the same with vicky mm-hmm. that the companions up to now when you dropped them in historical circumstances they adapted fairly well yeah do you know and maybe it's because your know, barbara was a history teacher Ian is friends with the history teacher. <laughs> um, you know, whatever the case may be. But Stephen just bumbles from one room to another, saying shit he shouldn't, doing shit he shouldn't. And he's so brash the whole time. Like, yeah. every line he says, it's as if it's meant to be intimidating. And I'm like, dude, rain it the fuck in. And I don't know if that was a Peter Purvis thing or if that was a character, this is the way the character is going to be type of thing. But I don't like it, whichever one it was. Because it makes his character incredibly difficult to like. He also displays what I would would term a special kind of dumb. (laughs) Why? On several occasions, right? But one in particular. These people don't trust you. Why would they? 
you can barely fucking string a sentence together. Don't go rooting around in their presses and drawers, I find. Yeah. Don't go rooting through their shit. Like, oh, I need to speak to this person. Okay, I'll go get him for you. Actually, I'll leave him a note while you're going. Where the fuck is the logic in that? Uh, of course someone comes in and is like, why are you rooting through his things? Bear in mind that Nicholas is charged with protecting the Admiral. Yep. <laughs> and Stephen, they think, is working with the yeah. Abbot of nothing else. Yeah. And they're like, what? Like, oh, he's just a special kind of dumb. However, there is one or two nice things mm. about him. Okay, it's, it's the one nice thing, but it comes up twice, right? So, which is his protective streak. So, I've said this before. Stephen, though I have issues with him as a character, he is very protective. Mm-hmm. Sometimes too much, but it comes, I think, from a good place. Yeah. Do you know? I'll give him the benefit of the doubt for that. And so, we really see that in his interactions with Anne. You know, from the moment he first meets her, he's concerned about her. Because she looks scared out of her fucking wits. And later on, when he's convinced that she has died in this massacre, because the doctor just sent her back to wherever she fucking lived before, mm. he tries to force the responsibility of her death onto doctor which is an unfair thing to do but it's an understandable reaction so i'd kind of put it as a positive for steven as a character because it just shows how much he cares about other people when you put aside all of his brashness and ego and everything else he does care about other people a great deal which I have to keep reminding myself when he does stupidly dumb things. Like, for example, wandering out of the TARDIS, just being like, no, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm going to leave. And like, I just laughed like, because I wondered if Hartnell was being sarcastic when he said it. And he's like, at least he's learned something. At least he checked the scanner before he left. And like, if that's the highest level of praise you have for this guy, then you just reinforce my belief that he's thick as a fucking plank where the highest level of praise you have is at least he checked the scanner before he went outside yeah that that's the only thing he learned from you was to look before you leap or at least glance before you leap so yeah he wants off he leaves in a strop fine like I said, it's an understandable strop except that he comes running back in like two minutes later and apparently all is forgotten like, you see, this is the thing now, right, is that about his leaving, and it's like, okay, after everything he witnessed, like, in terms of, you know, the Daleks master plan, okay, like, you like you lose two people that you're traveling with, and then you come to the massacre, and, like, you're, another person you become friends with has Three to be people. Left. Well, well, and more, and, and more so than anyone. Oh, yeah, sorry, Brett. Um, well, he didn't see Brett die, put it that way. Good matter. Okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I will never forget Brett. Brett. No, no, no. Brett was awesome. So, like, yeah, no, it's it's honest. You can't really blame him for wanting to leave because, like, it's no. if if this is the price of having to travel, I'm not sure it's a price I want to pay. But that being said, after the time meddler, I'm pretty sure Vicky and the Doctor would have sat him down to kind of say, "Look, this is the rules of traveling through history. We can't, we absolutely can't." So. His whole, you know, 
lambasting of the doctor then is that you kind of wonder is that was a heat of the moment or is this just his legitimate thoughts like that you know you're a bad you're a bad person for leaving this person behind even though you told me that i have to i think it's lashing out i think it's an understandable lashing out do you know like he's clearly hurt and he doesn't know what to do so you lash out at the person closest to you i think some of it is ignorance though Mm. you know um ignorance of how walking through time there's rules and he doesn't seem to care about that but am i the only one who found it hilariously funny that he came back in it's like you have to leave you have to leave there are police coming so just <laughs> lock the door mm-hmm. just, just lock the door what 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 are they gonna do if you were so kind of adamant about leaving why not just stick your head in the door and say you might want to take off the police are coming to use it or if you hated him so much why bother warning him of anything mm. also where did Stephen go so Stephen wanders off in a strap mm. the doctor has his emotional moment Dodo comes in and they have their conversation and then Stephen comes running back in because he sees two policemen walking are they just walking in the direction of the TARDIS is he assuming what they're going to do and even if they were, again, we said don't mention episode seven of the Daleks Master Plan, but episode seven of the <laughs> Daleks Master Plan, the police didn't give a monkeys about the box. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, and what if they try to like put it on a truck and take it away somewhere? Cool. The doctor will leave when he's good and ready. I don't get what the fucking panic is about, Stephen. Ah. <laughs> uh. Other than the fact that, you know, we don't want to actually write you out of the show and that was a cheap cop-out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fake. Fake! So, will we do the story-based and then our new arrival? Mm-hmm. Cool. So, while you are having your beverage... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, do you want to do Nicholas and Gaston or will we do Anne first? Uh, Nicholas and Gaston first, I think. Um, so for me, they're effectively two sides of the same coin because they both have masters that they're incredibly loyal to. Yes. They're fiercely devout to their fellow Huguenots or like the, the people, like their fellow, well, the, I would say their fellow Frenchmen, but no, it's their fellow Huguenots due yeah. to the the religious divide. Um, yes. Now, Nicholas, when I say they're two sides of the same coin, that, that unites them. But Nicholas is definitely the more, I'd say, analytical and prefers the use of uh, brain and diplomacy whereas Gaston is a bit more quick tempered and quick to the sword so he'd be the, yeah. the brawn aspect of side of things um, I did enjoy both of them I thought like they were f- two fantastic parts acted really really well and the fact that now I know that it's Emma Thompson's dad is Gaston still doesn't you know it, it doesn't colour my perception or doesn't change anything but I will say that of the two of them dying I think Nicholas's death was the one I was sadder at. Yeah. Gaston is... <laughs> He's a Gaston. He, Yeah, he really he is. He is surprisingly very similar to the Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. In the sense that he believes he's right. Mm-hmm. He, you know, clicks his finger at people, which I fucking hate. I hate that. You know, when you see that in movie, or even in reality, when like someone wants to get like a, a waiter's attention, so they're cl- oh, no, no, it's just rude. Yeah. Gaston is very harsh, and 
his hatred of Catholics makes him blind to everything. Do you know who he kind of reminds me of? Who? The Red Viper. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Uh, One of the things that I found um, slightly humorous at the time, and then I found it even more humorous in, in a sense when I looked up the trivia was that and I messaged you with this the first time we hear Gaston speak mm-hmm. I paused and I was like okay this came out in the 60s so this isn't who my brain is telling me it is he sounded a lot like Kenneth Branagh <laughs> and I was like he sounds so much like Kenneth Branagh and then of course there's like the utter weirdness of it and the fact that he's Emma Thompson's dad yeah and Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh were a thing mm-hmm. back in the 90s and I was just like Okay, my, my brain's gone to like all these weird <laughs> places, right back in. Um, I think Gaston is an interesting character mm-hmm. to watch. He's a character you can very easily hate, but for some reason I don't. And that that's the thing, like you're you're kind of you're built up in these scenarios to I think sometimes in these type of things you're built up to like members of both sides. Now in this particular one I don't think there was anyone on the, the Catholic side that I was particularly fond of. No. But with Gaston, Gaston is the type of character that you're meant to, oh, fuck this guy. No, I re- I didn't. I did enjoy his screen time. Like, and the fact that he lets Stephen live, like he he easily outmatches Stephen, and yeah. he disarms him, and he just goes get out, and he gives him back his sword, and it's like, so you're you're not just a thug. Like there's a, there's a bit there's a bit of there's a certain level of. I'd say honor niceness to yeah. him. He's sorry, go on. He is very like he defends Anne at the beginning. Yeah. Do you know? But is is that just to kind of piss off the the Cardinal's guard more so than actual anything out of chivalry? I I wouldn't say he's chivalrous. No. Well, except for, except say- for letting Stephen live. That's the only thing that I can think of. I think he just thinks Stephen's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know I think with Anne and even like the fact that like you know, he t- you know he acknowledges Stephen into the group and welcomes him in and like, I think he's a nice person in general but like I said when it comes to his interactions with certain people his hatred of them and of the religion that they observe mm. blinds everything as for Nicholas, I think he's a really nice man. He's very patient and kind. We see that from the outset. And I'm really glad that that doesn't change at all. Mm. Yes, he starts to not trust Stephen. But he doesn't ever go as far as Gaston. And even when there's evidence against Stephen, he's like, okay, pr- prove it to me. Show me. You know, He gives him the opportunity. So I think I loved Nicholas. I thought Nicholas was a very nice character. Yeah. Um, pretty much everything you have to say about him, you can tell in the first five seconds. But yeah. you know, sometimes it's nice just to have a nice person around. And I suppose that brings us on to Anne. Yeah. Um, I have a weird thing about Anne because yeah. most of my comments about Anne are to do with her interactions with Stephen. Yeah. And that's probably doing her a bit of a disservice because going back, she's incredibly brave. Yeah. You know, what she does at the beginning, how she's introduced into the story, she is incredibly brave. However, all that I can remember from her is her interactions with Stephen. 
And at first, I was like, you know, she has a good read on Stephen, that Stephen is fundamentally a nice person and a caring person and that he's not trying to trick them or anything like that. And she sort of reads that on him fairly quickly. But then she becomes slightly obsessed with him. Mm. You were the first person who was ever nice to me. I was like, okay, creepy. You're being (laughs) creepy. And like, she just latches on to Stephen and is like, I'll go with you. Let's leave Paris. I'm like, first of all, he's thick as a plank. Why would you want to go anywhere with him? I think the reason that she ca- like attaches herself to him so much is that he's the only one that doesn't treat her like a chess piece. Or some sort of um, pawn, right? Yeah, but, which is also a chess piece. Um, but but no, he, he, he doesn't treat her as anything less than human. He's the, he's the, and that's fine. Yeah, That's a nice reason... That's it. He, she gets a good read on him, hmm. but by the end of the story, she is so devoted to him, purely based on that, that a it sort of makes me feel for her as a person that like she has nobody else in her life who's ever been nice to her. That's slightly concerning, but also like she acknowledges it herself that he clearly has no fucking clue what he's doing. If anyone's going to be the leader in the like if those two were stranded there, right? Mm. The leader of the two of them would be Anne. <laughs> <laughs> because Stephen is as thick yeah. as a plank. Um I think there's a small bit of maybe kind of moon eyed thing over it is that like so it's like there's there's no hiding the fact that Stephen is English in this. Yeah. And so Which, Stephen isn't. I don't know if Stephen's meant to be English when we first meet him. No, I think he's I, from space. I think he is. I think he's meant to be English. Okay. And so, like you know, he, okay, so he is English. He's nothing but English. Now we know that he's a, and he keeps saying, "Oh, I'm a traveler. I travel around the place." So maybe it's a thing of, he's nice to me. He saved me. He's going to go. Maybe he might take me with him. Maybe I might get out of my. Uh, to kind of steal a line from it was like this quite provincial life you know that's that's the thing that I think that she latches on to Stephen yeah I just think it's a wrong person to latch on to <laughs> the old, no I have, I have to ask you a question okay yeah she gets left behind mm-hmm. now is that due to the dictates of travelling through time or I don't want to have another Katerina or sorry, I don't want to have to have the fate of another Katarina. So you think the doctor didn't bring her with him because... Because he didn't want her to end up the same way that Katarina did. No, I don't think that's it. Yeah, no, like, no, but like, that, that's a question that came up. Like, I was like, no, it's purely down no, to... Like, this, uh, I, I, I don't get how that's even a question, to be honest, because that's literally answered at the end of the episode. Yeah. Because he takes Dodo. So... Yeah. Oh, I know, but I... I but I see, like, at before, no, not isn't the whole kind of thing of uh, the story dictates, but it's like, oh, no, you can save this person. Because, like, after all, like, you you saved Katarina. Like, she was fated to die in Troy. It was like, I know, I think that it's a case of, no, we're not fucking up with time anymore in this regards. She has to stay. Again, I, I, I don't read it that way. Hmm. Partially because, how about the doctor didn't choose to save Katarina. Katarina was helping him with Stephen. Yeah. 
you know, it was a practical thing at the time. He, he could really go, thanks, fuck off, and I'll just boot her out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, clearly Vicky had trusted Katarina and stuff like that. I think him leaving Anne behind here is that the difference between Anne and Katarina is Katarina came from a myth. Yeah. It's it's the, the advancement of time, I think. Yeah, whereas Anne came from an actual event. And also, I mean, the Doctor doesn't know her yeah. at all. And, you know, he doesn't know the ramifications that taking her out of time would have. So, yeah, I don't. I, I didn't see it that way. I, I didn't read the situation that way at all. I didn't even think of it, to be honest. So... Maybe that's why they did it, but well, I, but I, it, I it was just that. like it was just a thought that came into my head. It was like you know, well, like no, it's like this is one of those things, and I actually kind of uh, had it for Stephen as well. Like you know, what, uh, my note was welcome to traveling through fixed points in time. Shit has to happen, and that's why like I was like no, like he said no, we can't save her, and or we she we can't bring her with us or whatever the case is, and it's. Because Anne is a, is a young girl and she's a servant, and like, it, like there was com- there could be comparisons, and no, there is comparisons to Katarina in the sense of the background and like who the character is, and like there could there be an argument made for that's the reason that he didn't pick her, but I would again be like you and say no, it's where look, it's not situational, like we're far away from things. She has a family that she can go to, you can stay, you can stay there. We have to leave right now. We can't take her with us. Yeah, also, Troy was under attack yeah. at the time. Mm. <laughs> you know? Um, so, like, th- there's there's differences. Yeah, I, I didn't see it that same way. Um, now that we talk about it, I understand what you mean, but yeah. the thought didn't even enter my mind, to be honest. There's not a whole lot to say about Dodo because we only get, like, what, two, three minutes with her? Yeah, another orphan, though. Well, yeah, because, like, she, I have no, well, she says she has no close family. Yeah. Well, like implying that like she could still have family, but she well actually yeah no sorry or orphan in that sense as opposed to absolutely having fucking no one. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, she, yeah, she is another orphan. What is it with the doctor? Orphan, orphan, by, orphan by definition of an orphan. <laughs> <laughs> you knew what I meant. Shush. Um, yeah, so, uh, we have another orphan. She has absolutely no fear of her kidnapper. Mm. That is what he is. Or this weird machine that she's in. Um, one thing I do love about her is. She does remind me of Donna, in a way. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, Stephen loses his fucking shit, which I think we'll talk about more next time. But you could be going anywhere or anywhere. And her response is like, so? So what, like? I love it. All that was going through my head was like, is like Stephen kind of going, was this what I was like when I came on board? Yes, but less charismatic. Yeah, but like, she literally has no fear and already like in only what two minutes mm. she has way more personality than Katarina ever fucking had Damn. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so far I like her I'm interested mm. I'm very interested to see her dynamic with Steven mm. because again not to beat a dead horse on this but Jesus like what are you doing here? You could be going anywhere. Like, says the man who stumbled into the machine when he was like dying, and then was like, "Oh, I didn't realize where I was." Like, 
and then pre- <laughs> then proceeded to tackle a guy for no reason other than he just yeah, wouldn't exactly uh, um, but yeah no I think she's interesting I'm looking forward to seeing more from her so, so the villains of the piece in this uh, this week uh, that we've that I've put down anyway are because a lot there's a lot of historical figures in this but the villains okay. that I've put down were the Abbot and then Simon and Roger I had a different I had a different read on this so okay. I don't I didn't see the abbot as a villain at all, and we we can talk about that in a little second. But I actually moved the marshal hmm. into my primary villain slot. Okay. The way we've done this in the past is we've only discussed the historical characters outside of the historical character bucket hmm. if we felt that they contributed in a companion or villain capacity significantly. Yeah. And I think marshal the marshal does. Or- I- like I know, I get, I get that, I do. I see, but this is the thing. But this is such a confusing story in terms of Doctor Who. I, I think I'll put that into my overall. So, who did you have as the villains? Marshall Tavanis, Simon and Roger, just because they're the sort of henchmen. Mm-hmm. And then I was tempted to move up the Queen Mother, mm-hmm. but that really only comes in at the end, so I didn't bother. Cool. So, how about we do this? I discuss the Abbot, and you can chime in if you want. We then go on to Simon and Roger because we both have notes on them. And then we lead into Marshall Tavani because he's my first on the list of historical figures, but he's also your primary villain. Yeah. Cool. cool. So with the Abbot, he comes across as it's he's more bark than bite. That's the way that mm. I... Uh, and I think there was a huge, huge missed opportunity here for if he gets wind... Like they, they, I would have loved to have seen him kind of get wind that Stephen thinks that he's someone else and then try and do like a kind of a nebula endgame type thing on it where it's like oh you think I'm this travelling companion of yours well I might try and string you along and like it's not as if like William Hartnell was aware or anything like that or he was on holidays because he's playing both characters so I, I don't know like there was no impact by the Abbot yet he's this constant presence for like three episodes my thing with the Abbot and the reason why I because originally the way this usually works is Paddy usually watches the episodes before me and he's watched them before I will briefly look at the headings in Paddy's notes <laughs> to see who are the key characters that Paddy has picked out so I'll pay close attention to them and I can add others if I see the need so you had written down the Abbot so I was paying close attention to the Abbot anyway hmm. I think the Abbot was just a crock of shit yeah, it's right. like... the original plot was clearly that the doctor goes undercover as the abbot. That was clearly what it was fucking meant to be, <laughs> and they didn't do that. No. So the whole character of the abbot is a complete fucking write-off because the things that he does, and even like the marshal, marshal Tavanez calls out the fact that like the abbot seems to be actively fucking up their plans, mm. which doesn't make sense if he's not the doctor. Because him fucking things up, it just seems inconsequential in that regard. So, I just see him in context of the story that we were given. The abbot is an intimidating presence, but ultimately nothing. Was like, that's it. It's it's. It almost felt like they were trying to do, like they were trying to be a bit more clever and do the the reign of terror, where he's the 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 governor of the the southern provinces. But at least then we got to see him play the part while also kind of tipping the wink to the camera kind of saying like, no, I am the Doctor. Whereas like this, it's like, okay, we're not seeing any alone time by him interacting with other characters. 
or if we are, we're not seeing him after the fact, kind of going, "Phew, that was a close one." So, like, do, do you know he's a villain? He used up valuable airtime. That's why he's a villain. <laughs> but we got to see Hartnell play somebody else. We did. We got to. We got to see mean old gruff William Hartnell play a mean old gruffer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's different. They're different. The Paddy Russell made sure they were different. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, yeah, that's that's for me though why he's not a villain because yeah. he's barely a character. But again, like how many times have we like I mean, we we did the Space Museum. We have the we had Lobos and we had like the security commander. They're barely fucking like as like the, I think the chief villain of that story was the whole thing of your know, predestination and fighting the future. But because True, but the abbot doesn't actually do anything whereas those two people actually tried to do things they were just shit at it <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh, cool so Simon and Roger yeah so Simon and Roger for me they sort of fall into the stereotypical henchman roles that you see yeah. so you have the super competent one and the kind of shy less competent one who is still a henchman and who does still follow the same ethos mm. but he's not the sharpest tool in the shed you know he kind of bumbles along i would put them as simon is an attack dog and roger is a lackey yeah i think that's a good comparison yeah. one thing about roger though i said he's not the sharpest tool in the shed no he has a very good visual memory though mm. which could be why they keep him around <laughs> Oh god, the sun was setting. It was cold. There was dew on the ground. I remember this much. <laughs> As for Simon though, um Simon, I think it was probably written this way is the mirror image of Gaston. Absolutely. And I I think they I honestly think that they're both kind of mirror images of Gaston and Nicholas because like Simon relishes relishes the concept of going beyond the initial plan and just slaughtering every Huguenot he can get his hands on. And had Roger been around, I think Roger would be more like Tavanier and that sort of have that reluctance of like, why not just kill the people we're meant to kill and everything else will fall into line. Yeah. Like, I don't think Simon minded that there was no list at the end. Yeah, no, exactly. Like he, because he was like, oh, thank God, we'll get rid of all of them. And I'm like, okay, no, that also, like that, that final like the final five minutes into the build up to the massacre montage it's incredibly unsettling yeah and like I like we like we've seen like you know the last kind of big you know intrigue show you know say the last decade was probably Game of Thrones in terms of like, you know the red wedding and the the various weddings and all this, and like all the, the backstabby intrigues and stuff like that I'd put that five minute section or even the whole build up against the entire run of that show because yeah. it was so well done and I was really, really unsettled by some of the characters. Mm. The thing about Simon that, that I have down here is that <laughs> because, again, none of the footage survives. So, mm. again, thank you, Luce Cannon. Great job, as always. It sounds like he's sneering the whole time. Mm-hmm. This guy is as subtle as a brick to the face. Yep. <laughs> and so... You're not surprised when he's like, oh, thank God I don't have to use a list. It doesn't surprise you in Mm. the slightest. It's not meant to surprise you. He's not meant to be a complex character. Like you said, he's an attack dog. Yeah. And that's what he does. 
Now, most dogs have a master. So how about we move yes. on to the master of this particular attack dog and we discuss your primary villain and my first historical figure, Marshal Tavanya. Yeah, so the reason why I have him down as the primary villain is because he is the guy who holds Simon's leash. Yes. Right? He is incredibly mistrustful. Like, he sees shadows where there is no sun. Mm-hmm. You know, he is so mistrustful, constantly scheming. And again, you sort of see it in that he serves the Queen Mother. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Paddy was making funny voices. He serves the Queen Mother, not the King. Yep. He has his own agenda. And the fact that he was orchestrating to kill the Admiral from the off. Do you know? The minute Anne comes in, we hear that something about... She heard something about, like, it'll be like this all over again. And stuff like that. So, like, he's been planning this well in advance. This wasn't a reactive thing to anything that happened in the story. He's been doing this for a while. Yeah, he has some concern at the end about innocence, which is, you know, it's a nice foil for that character. Do you know what I mean? Because usually the main villain is a bit more like Simon. Mm. Do you know, a bit more, it doesn't matter, I'm going to kill everybody. And at least he feels for at the end, but he still gives the order. Yeah. He still follows through. And he had a fucking list. Mm-hmm. The fact that he wrote a list in the first place of Cath- of Huguenots, sorry, that he wanted to kill. The fact that he attacked and orchestrated the attack on the Admiral, who was a friend of the King, who, you know, was meant to be, you know, helping form this bridge between the two populaces, between the Catholics and the Protestants or whatever. He doesn't care. He has his schemes and the schemes of the Queen Mother and he is perfectly willing to see them through even when at the end he has a small little bit of remorse but he still says there's no list. Yeah. Do it. And that was the thing was that like you were were kind of hoping that like you'd put up a bit more defence. Now he knows which side his bread is buttered like so that was that's the thing like he's the, mar- he's the he's the fucking marshal of France like he wants to stay that way if not you know ascend higher and like ultimately that's why he goes ahead with the plan but it, it was nice to see that one fleeting moment of like if we just take care of this list all the major opposition to our power is gone now we're just salting the earth and then it's like okay so yeah. cool just salt the earth yeah but the fact that he's still okay with it though oh because yeah because if he uh, wasn't yeah. there is another option which is walk away Hmm. and he doesn't do that so that for me was why he was top of that totem pole when we get to the historicals we'll talk about the queen mother but for me for the entirety of the story my primary villain was the marshal oh he's he's like he's the guy that pulls all the strings like even even the abbot who was meant to be like this like in theory this person that's got the ear of the cardinal, who's like also like a representative of the pope, like he's, but like he's over him. He's the one that's pulling all the strings, and like, even then, you know, like you know, he he contemplates kind of standing up to the queen mother, but then it's like, you know what, I fucking like my lot in life. I, at the end of the day, these people they're probably going to die anyway, because we're probably going to use them as fodder in some regards. 
so better to get it done now and like, it's you'd be kind of wondering like you know through all very other famous like genocides in history warder guys like him where it's like well why don't we just get rid of the people we're intending to get rid of well why not get rid of all of them okay yeah it, it, he's an interesting look into a regime that would yeah kill off yeah it's like innocence and it, it's i suppose it's like that thing it's amazing how fast you're okay with something when fear of your own life comes into effect so we'll now move into <laughs> into the historical figures proper I suppose uh, the Queen Mother Catherine de' Medici what a bitch oh yeah oh silent but powerful I mean bearing in mind she doesn't actually say anything until the last episode oh like she she gets called out in, in, in a in a royal assembly or in a royal council meeting by the colony and she just fucking pimp walks away she doesn't throw toys out of her pram like do what she came across as a more competent Cersei. I, I was thinking the same thing. She is who Cersei wants to be. Yeah. They have the booze. Do you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, the idea that she has this much power hmm. over people. She's one of those as well, again, in a very Cersei-like manner, who cannot give up their power when the younger steps up. No. She's the queen mother. Yep. She has no power <laughs> whatsoever by law and yet A she inspires this incredible loyalty Mm. in those around her but also the fact that she undermines her son's authority I would say through fear rather than inspiration (laughs) true but still oh yeah inspires yeah yeah. but uh, no it's like that thing like where she just walks in and like the king has made a decision and she's just like no this is the way it's going to be there is one thing about her, though, which is in a slightly messed up way. Mm-hmm. She has a reason behind her madness. It's oh. not a good reason, but it's a reason. Which is she sees the Huguenots as a threat. Mm. As a threat to her son. And to their livelihoods. And the fact that she's like, you know... Yeah, now they've married into the family. How long do you think they're going to let you live? But this is the thing. She arranged for that marriage. Yeah. So, it's... Was it just a... I, I don't know. I think she she's an interesting, she's an interesting character. Listen, you know, she'd, you'd kind of maybe rank her as the overall villain. Hmm. But the fact that she only says something in the last, <laughs> like, ten minutes. Yeah. Sort of took away from that a little bit. But like she she does almost um, throw the whole thing away by like having Henry killed. Like so, the the person, the representative of all French Protestants that she has married, that she married to her daughter, the one that could have broken me. She, she then decides to kind of you know like, if we're going to kill him all, we might as well kill him as well. It's like no, that is a really really bad idea. Yeah, that actually just reminded me of like um, Simon was so bummed that he didn't get to kill him. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that was a kind of like, no, you're the one that has to escort him safely from the city. <laughs> so the next person on the list is Admiral de Coligny. So I only have two notes about him, to be honest. The first is mm-hmm. that he plays it very cool in private conversations. Yep. You know, he clearly knows his own power and he knows, mm-hmm. you know, how to handle himself. On the flip side, though, he's a very passionate advocate when in council, 
which I'm mm. guessing is kind of his job. Like there's serious game. Like there's a serious. You might even okay. Like I know that it came later. Like but you know, there's a serious massacre vibes in Game of Thrones. There's a serious Game of Thrones vibe in Massacre. Mm. He's very much like Ned Stark in the sense of, like he knows his position. He's the admiral of the of the Royal Navy. He doesn't want to ascend any higher. Like he he's happy with his lot in life. His main thing though is just to to stop the persecution of well Huguenots. But he also, I suppose, wants to stop this whole persecution of Protestants across Europe because, you know, the Dutch are a small nation at that stage mm. and he wants the French to intercede on their behalf. Um, like, I really liked him. And the painting by Francois Dubois, which is what the final scene of the loose cannon representation of the massacre is based on, it shows him being, like, I think, thrown, about to be thrown out of the window of his house. I, this is a guy that he's a wounded man and he's he he's not even given the dignity of a last stand and it's just it's it's heartbreaking like that this man of strength at the end is it's like a newborn babe type thing yeah and also as well to go back to that painting it does show the queen mother like investigating a pile of dead protestants and it's the, like yeah yeah, it's a uh, it's a very unsettling painting, and it added a huge effect to the watching of this. Yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll discuss that. Yeah. in a minute. Um, yeah, no, I agree with you on the admiral. I think he was a good character. I think mm-hmm. he um, didn't deserve the outcome that he got. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another character on my list. I don't know if you had on yours, mm-hmm. which is the king. Yeah, I've got the king. I oh, have the king. The king. Cool. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't remember copy it over from yours. My thing is that he's a fool, he's a petulant child, and he's a man of extremes. Well, see, this is the thing now, right? And I put it down as, like, because we're, we don't really live in a world anymore, well, not to my knowledge anyway, where monarchies are as all-powerful as they once were. And so this is the dangers of the monarchy. So, like, I obviously doing a bit of history. Uh, Charles was 10 when he, took, when he ascended to the throne. Hmm. And he is now 22 at the time of, this, of the massacre. And he is... Like, it's all about, come on, we'll go play uh, tennis. Come on, you know, let's go, like, hunting, you know. He's he's very much, like, he's that peacocky king, you know. He, and he's completely under the thumb of his mother, which is, like, his like, his reactions to everything. Like, you know, they, they try to kill the admiral. Like, yo, fucking kill them all. Find out and kill them. It's like, okay, who are they all? You need to first of all do an investigation. You can't just go rounding up every fucking person willy nilly to try and find it. He's very much hot headed. Yeah. And even if he threatens to kill his mother and it's like going, dude, you don't you should know you if you're smart, you know that you don't have the power base to back that up. Yeah, I, I think he just comes across as a petulant child. Yeah. You know, uh, which makes sense in the historical context that you've mm-hmm. explained. But what the worst thing about him is is that he's so up in arms over the colony being wounded that in the end he still signs his death warrant. He still yeah. he still gives his okay to the slaughter. Like and it's like, I th- this is part of the reason I love Doctor Who is that it tells like especially the historical stuff. It informs you about things that you would never have known uh, due to like the the localization of whatever history you're you're taught in schools. Um. And it just kind of educates you on the, all these these characters from history, and it's like Jesus. Like now, sometimes they're a small bit misrepresented, but it, but it gives you the urge to actually go up and look about that person to see was he really that bad? Yeah, an interesting 
uh, set of characters, to say the least. Yeah, um, absolutely. Let's see how, the to what, ha- how they play into our overall scores. Jinx, ha. Huh? <laughs> so... We now come to the overall section where we'll give our scores and I personally think that this will be a very interesting one to discuss. So yeah. Trisha, I wanna ask you I wanna ask you a question. Okay? Go on. Is this a Doctor Who story? Yes. But in my opinion, not a good one. I get where your question is coming from because the doctor's barely fucking in it. Mm-hmm. But I consider Mission to the Unknown to be a Doctor Who story, and he's not in that at all. Yeah. See, I like I'm I'm in complete agreement with you. Right, is that if this is to be categorized as a Doctor Who story, which it actually is, it's not a great one. However, as a story, I think it's fucking incredible. I didn't like it. No. No. Okay. Why didn't you like it? I'll I'll tell you one thing. Right. Right. My first note here, right? Because yep. usually I, I watch this, but like I watch it on one screen. I've got my notes on the other yeah. screen, right? My first note is, ooh, John Lucarotti. And I got really, really excited. Yeah. This isn't the story that he fucking wrote, though. No, it's Donald This story is an absolute fucking clusterfuck. Is it a Doctor Who story, even though the Doctor isn't in most of it? Yes. It's a bad one, though, because they write around that so fucking terribly. It's so badly written. It's horrifically written. Like, you and I were talking about this a little bit during the week, because my score for this story has changed literally every day since i watched Mm. it right and again it did change again while we were talking which i knew it would in the first episode we have it set up that simon sees the doctor and follows after him because we find out later the doctor looks like the abbot Mm -hmm. where did simon go what did simon do that plot line goes fucking nowhere then we have the doctor being escorted somewhere by some local child where the fuck did he go what was he doing originally clearly he was meant to be taken to replace the abbot that was meant to be the fucking point but they don't do that so then the doctor's gone for two fucking episodes you've steven who's as thick as a plank on the best of days coming face to face with the abbot and still being convinced it's the doctor which just makes him out to be fucking stupid because it's not the doctor at all it's nothing like him other than it looks like him which makes no fucking sense and like for me it's just such a clusterfuck of disaster in terms of the writing it makes no logical fucking sense and even if you went like oh the whole the doctor being the abbot was just a bit of fun you know they, you know, it's a bit of fun for the audience of oh wink wink you thought we replaced him but we didn't where the fuck did he go so they just gloss over wherever the hell he went where, where did he go? What did he do? Like, you can't just not explain it. At all. I mean, in every other episode, or every other story where the Doctor's not in it for a bit, they explain it. Because usually Hartnell's on holidays, right? Hmm. But they explain where he's gone. There's no explanation given. He just fucked off. And never came back. Until the very end. So, I, I think it's a really badly written story. Um, the other thing that I don't like about it, and this is something that I 
I didn't think it would bother me. Hmm. So, full disclosure, Paddy messaged me before I watched the story saying, do we want to discuss the difference, like, the differences between the Catholics and the Protestants and that type of thing? And I said, look, you know, if it comes up, it comes up. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Heads up, me and Paddy are from Ireland. We were raised Catholic, right? Neither of us are practicing at the moment, but we were raised Catholic. And I haven't been a practicing Catholic since I was like 12, if I'm being honest. This story made me incredibly fucking uncomfortable. And that's a personal thing. But the level of hatred put into the words every time someone said the word Catholic really got under my skin. And that's a personal preference. Other people won't feel that. I wasn't expecting to feel that. But I did. Particularly given that this came out in the 60s when in certain parts of Ireland relationships between Catholics and Protestants weren't the greatest. Now this was a historical event. This happened. But the way that it's portrayed I found incredibly uncomfortable. And the other two things that sort of really reduced the score for me was and I don't know if this is a loose canon thing we try not to dock points based on loose canon choices because that's not what was in the actual episode I don't know and I couldn't find out the painting that they use at the end Mm -hmm. to depict what happens I don't know if the BBC used that painting and that's why loose canon used it or if Loose Cannon made that choice themselves. But that painting is fucking sickening. And it's a horrible thing to include in the end of a Doctor Who story. You have people being decapitated. You have dead babies in the street. It is absolutely unnecessary for the point you're trying to get across. And I just thought it was... Like, there's decapitation, hangings, picked piles of dead children. What the fuck were you thinking? Putting that at the end of it and I get that you want to have a visceral response it's meant it's a massacre it's not meant to be you know hearing the two Vikings get killed off off screen in the time matter it's not meant to be like that it's not meant to evoke the same emotions however this show is meant for children that was incredibly fucking inappropriate in in my mind I don't know if you feel the same way but for me that was incredibly inappropriate so I want to make a distinction okay Mm-hmm. Uh, and again just like, no when I said that okay I thought the story was fucking incredible everything excluding all the elements of Doctor Who so excluding Stephen and excluding the thing with the Doctor I I would have gladly have watched a four-parter about just the massacre itself because the acting in it was brilliant the characters were really like so because Stephen bumbles along like between scene to scene like he doesn't really have a huge fucking impact and this is the thing is that a question that's often asked when people talk about the classic series is like, oh, if the Doctor's not in it, can it be any good? Or like, if this, if the party is split, can it be any good? Now, Stephen finds himself in a set of story where he carries the most of it. But, I honestly think this, this is a story where the story carries Stephen. Yeah, I would agree on that. The, the, the whole thing of it is that I was genuinely excited to watch each new episode of this story because I don't know whether it was just the fact that I like, I like history or if it was just I was really into like the act, the all the other historical actors, 
but I was really like I was brought into it and I was like the point there where it was like we were raised Catholic and obviously in Ireland Catholics were the ones that were in the, the lower tier of how things went mm-hmm. so to see it flipped is it was really surreal and like the painting at the end it's as I said like it's a fucking haunting painting and you can't not look at that painting and not be unnerved even in the slightest and like it, it's without being overly graphic it's as visceral as the t- just the time would have dictated I supposed like if we were to look at that if we were to kind of put that comparatively to now I just I don't know what you could levy it up against you know um, but like the Doctor Who components of this story are bad they, they, they are with the exception of William Hartnell's amazing speech at the end yeah which had me bawling my eyes out yeah <laughs> But like that's the only part of the Doctor Who component of the story that I like. The other stuff that I like about it is everything to do with the intrigue and the build-up and the execution of the massacre itself through the historical characters. And yeah, I, I can get that. And that's where my confusion over how to score this came about. Am I scoring Doctor Who? Or am I scoring historical period drama? Yeah, and I mean, you raised the point of like, you'd be interested in watching a four-parter just devote to the massacre. You know, I don't want people to think that the comments I made earlier are that like I don't want to acknowledge any time that anyone other than Catholics are persecuted. That's totally not what I mean. I would be quite interested to watch a documentary on this or watch a series dedicated to this. You know, with those characters and whatever. But this is Doctor Who. And for me, for Doctor Who, this story was shockingly bad. Even even the ending, right? So you got Hartnell's amazing monologue, and I love it. And I I went back and I listened to it several times. And I was bawling my eyes out, right? But Stephen's return and Joe Do- oh, Jojo, Stephen's return and Dodo join the team were so horribly written. And I'm like, what the hell was that? It's so bumbling. And to your point, Stephen bumbles from scene to scene. You know, you and I, you messaged me saying like, oh, can Stephen carry a show by himself? No, he fucking can't, is my opinion. Like, this was the platform. Um, this was the platform for Stephen's solo adventure. And it's done really badly. Yeah, I think I was so disappointed. And it wasn't until I looked up the trivia that I realised why I was so disappointed. Which is that John Lucarotti has written some amazing stories. Mm. And... This is what they do with he, what he gave them. The, this is what came out of it. You know, I was very interested in watching each episode. Literally, the episode ended and I queued up the next one straight away. I don't want to jump in. Not for the intrigue. I'm not a big fan of court intrigue. Those aren't my personal preferences, right? In terms of shows. So that's not my thing. But that's just a personal preference thing. Yeah. That part was done quite well on its own. Yeah. Right? I was queuing in going, where's the doctor? When are we going to see the wink to the camera that the abbot is the doctor? Where are we going? To see? I wanted the doctor back, and you know we made a comment earlier on how you know up until you know we've done this watch through. Usually, I watched William Hartnell stories for Ian and Barbara. That that was my mm. thing for the last ten years. The one thing this solidifies for me is that I want more of William Hartnell. Yeah, I want more of him, 
and this didn't give me that <laughs> so how what does your because uh, like we've been like this will be a very long episode but I think justifiably so um, yeah. what's your scoring on it okay I, I've changed this twice <laughs> while we've yeah. been talking and I've changed it daily yeah. so for context my scoring on this was between a 2.5 and a 3 mm-hmm. and to be honest after the conversation we've just had there's 2.75 written in front of my face yeah but no I, I'm going with my 2.5 I did not enjoy it mm. as an episode of Doctor Who I think skip it fuck it it doesn't matter um, if you're a fan of Steven I'm sure you love it but I'm not <laughs> So I didn't. I was kind of like you as well that I was, um, my my score changed. Like at one point I had this score at a four and then like I realized that, wait a minute, okay, got to go back and I'll take a look at it. And I was like, I'm scoring the intrigue a component of it. I'm scoring the historical component. I'm not scoring the Doctor Who component of it. And this is, and I, so I think for me, um, this is the thing is that I really enjoyed watching this because of the intrigue and I unfortunately I can't find this without the Doctor Who component of it so I, I, I've i given this uh, I've given this a tree because of uh, it's just so weird is that I'd recommend I'd recommend people to watch it if they're into like you know, oh like what the historical components of it like are in Doctor Who if you want to see a re- really well written historical component, but if you're looking to see kind of like a Doctor Who historical serial, it's not so much for you. And like even though I'm kind of fluctuating between like okay well that makes no sense like should it be a two point five in that regards or a three, um, oh. Well, I'm just gonna. I'm actually. I'm gonna. I'm gonna meet me halfway at both points. I'm gonna make it a two point seven five. I think the thing for me that now makes a lot more sense, and this is a personal opinion. And bear in mind for everyone, these are mine and Paddy's personal opinions. If you love this story, oh, yeah. all the credit to you. This is one of the last. I think the Gunfighters is the last true historical story. No, the the Highlanders. The, oh, the, the Highlanders sec- is the last. The second story, story of uh, Pat Shorten's run. With a story like this, I can understand why they stopped doing them. Yeah, uh, and like to be honest with you, like I kind of want. There was a story uh, during the Thirteen Doctors run, the Demons of the Punjab, which mm-hmm. is as close to a purely historical story as they have gotten in years. And I would like to see a return. I, I honestly would like. No, obviously it has to be well written. It's got to be back in the golden days of like you know John Lucarati and. Uh, even like still during the time period of Ian and Barbara because that's when they were best written. Yeah. So I would like to see something of that caliber written in the modern. Yeah, I think Rosa as well is another one that was very close to being a pure historical, but I think it would have done really well as a pure historical as well. But absolutely, that's a conversation for like what seven years from now, <laughs> something like that. So, yeah. Like it, this, this is right. This is probably one of the most interesting ones to discuss because even like we're still not certain about our our feelings on it, even at the end of it. Or we're we're no, we have certainty on some feelings, but not yeah. overall as a whole. Like we're not walking away like this from the Romans, which is like you know five. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, guys, as I said, interesting discussion. Uh, we have a new companion on the TARDIS. We have Stephen. 
but holding on after throwing a bit of a hissy. Um, so next week, we'll see how all these components will drill together as we follow the Doctor Stephen and our new friend Dodo, not Dorothea, Dodo, in the Ark. Bye. Bye. <laughs>